Hey, welcome to the 62nd episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a columnist for The Athletic. The music you're listening to is Croissant's Master by the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from journalism to songwriting to screenwriting to novels to romance to comics to whatever genres I'm thinking of. And today's guest is Dana O'Neill, senior college basketball writer for The Athletic. And in this really fun episode, I talk with Dana about guiding a story. What I mean is, how does experience, skill, wisdom, all those things, allow a writer to navigate a profile, to deftly piece it together, to seamlessly make it something special and unique? Dana and I also chat about the importance of the big name interview, even if that person doesn't say very much. And what exactly will it take for a woman to be named the head coach of a men's college basketball team? So sit back, relax, and enjoy Two Writers Slinging Yang. All right, Dana, I'm actually, it's funny. We recorded an intro for this, and then we had technological problems. And I was thinking, <laughs> when I was reading your articles before, like I was reading some of the pieces you wrote, and I was thinking, God, she writes with such authority, and she's such a smart writer, and you would be crazy to, like, not value this experience, and, you know, blah, 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 and how in 2018 they're getting rid of people like us with experience. And then we just spent the, the last 10 minutes <laughs> trying to connect using an app and Ringer. And you bring in like your son and I'm staring at your son and I can't hear you over Skype. And, and I'm thinking, this is why we are dying. <laughs> exactly. Do you do understand like whenever I need anything with technology, I'm like, I have a 14 year old and a 17 year old. I'm like, help, help. Right. I'm like, I, I need a phone like attached to the wall and sit in the closet. Like in, when I was a teenager with the cord wrapped around, then I'm good to go. Right. Wait, so I actually want to dive in with something. You wrote a story, uh, came out December 2017, All in the Family, Can Patrick Ewing Save Georgetown? And it's freaking great. <laughs> Thank you. I know it's so good. It's ridiculously good. And actually, you do something that I just don't think that many writers maybe do that well, especially younger writers. And that is, you write with the authority of somebody who knows what she's talking about. And, and just like little examples from your story. I mean, your lead was when the late Washington Post writer, Mark Asher, coined the phrase Hoya Paranoia, it was not meant as a compliment. It was a dig from someone who saw a Georgetown program that enjoyed being difficult in his dealings with just about everyone. And then you wrote, publicly, the Georgetown search seemed as a sputtering mess with a trifold <laughs> of splintering faction. And then later on, you write, Thompson, a man who has always been deliberate with his comments and relishes a good sword fight over semantics. The reason I keep pointing these things out, like... When I was coming up as a writer, and probably when you were too, I couldn't write like that. Like, I, I no. would not be able to say the Georgetown search seemed a sputtering mess. I would have to find someone to tell me that Absolutely. it was a sputtering mess. And I would quote that person saying it was a sputtering mess. Mm -hmm. How did you learn to do that? Where, like, where does that come from? Well, I mean, first of all, I don't think when you're first coming up, you should necessarily be able to write with such authority because you probably don't have it. I mean, right. the reason I'm able to say that is, first of all, I, I graduated from college, you know, 28 years ago. I'm, I'm no spring chicken. I've been doing this a while. So, and I've been doing, when I say this, I mean, not just sports writing, but specifically college basketball sports writing. So, you know, I've known the Georgetown program either up close or from afar for a, a long time. I've known JT3 back when he was at Princeton. Um, I, I know how he is. I've dealt with him. I've spoken to him. I know how he answers his questions. I know his father. 
And I know all the relationships that are there. It's based on my own past, my own knowledge of being around that program of talking to people over 20 years who have been part of it. So, you know, I don't think it's a sin if at the age of 25, you, you don't, aren't able to write like that. I actually think it's more of a sin if you write like that and you don't have the authority, if you have sort of pretend authority. Um, so I think it's just like anything else. It's just you, you spend time digging in on a subject and you work and you gain experience and knowledge and then you have more authority about it. So I was confident writing what I wrote because I knew it was true. I, I, I've lived it. Um, so, you know, I don't, I think sometimes young writers probably would like to be there and they try to rush it and they're not there yet, frankly, and people call them on it and they should be called on it. Um, I think you kind of have to earn those stripes a little bit. See, I remember when I was a, a young baseball writer at Sports Illustrated, I really wanted to be like Verducci and I would copy mm -hmm. what he did and it was all bullshit. Like it was all nonsense. Mm -hmm. I remember thinking I broke because a couple of GMs told me like they knew where Kevin Brown was going to sign. And I broke the big scoop that Kevin Brown was going to sign with the Colorado Rockies, which he never did. And <laughs> I thought, you know what I mean? Like I thought yeah. because I worked for SI and because I could introduce myself as a baseball writer that I was actually a knowledgeable baseball writer. Right. But I wasn't. It was all just a joke. Mm -hmm. It was like me like pretending I was something I wasn't. So how, how long do you have to be doing this to be authoritative, to be able to write with a voice that allows you to sort of interject right. into your piece a little bit? <laughs> I don't know, honestly, that there's a time frame. I mean, because it depends on your, on where you've been. I mean, so I came up in a very traditional sense, which no longer exists. I, I worked at the Trentonian, a tabloid rag of a newspaper in Trenton, New Jersey, mm -hmm. covering everything from Little League Baseball to the Yankees to five colleges that included D3 to D1. And then from there, you know, step to this paper to that paper. And over the years... I gained not just experience, but I gained trust in myself. I, I was confident in myself. Um, you can have that if you're a really knowledgeable beat writer and you really work at it. Um, you can have that fairly quickly, maybe more quickly than I did. I just think it's about you have to immerse yourself in something. I think that's mostly where it comes from. You know, I wasn't a national writer, writer until, you know, 10, 12 years ago, whatever it was. So, I spent a lot of time boots to the ground as a beat writer. And I think that is a step maybe that's missing these days. And I think that helps because then you do become, I was an authority on Villanova basketball. I covered them for, you know, 10 years and nobody was going to beat me. And I was confident in that, but I went to practice every single day, even though I didn't have to, because I wanted to make sure I knew what the heck I was doing. That's where you gain authority and confidence as a beat writer. Um, it's hard to gain authority and confidence as a national person because I'm supposed to know 351 teams. I am far more authoritative on Georgetown than I might be on, you know, South Dakota State to this day. I know what I don't know, and I'm okay with it. I don't have to know everything. I can't. So I think you need to pick your spots a little bit and take your time um, and figure out what you really, really know. I mean, I, I guess that's part of it. And also being able to understand, like in your circumstance, right, you learn what you think you know versus what you really know and who you trust and, and what information is good. It's not easy, but I think right now a lot of the steps get cut out and that's no, that's not a generational thing as much as a byproduct of journalism that steps get cut out and you lose some of the ones that teach you how to be savvy along the way. Well, I think it's really interesting that like you can have a 24 year old who really knows college basketball and might know the rosters of every team mm -hmm. better than you do and might understand, you know, whatever offense, every offense from what Princeton is Absolutely. running to what UNLV is running. 
But that doesn't mean the person can cover the sport very well. Correct. Absolutely. I mean, you can sit there and spit out statistics and, and everything like that. As I'm sure, as you know, well, look, anybody who is a sports fan can, if they're really dug in deep on a sport, can break down an offense, can look at statistics, can name a roster, can tell you who's hot, how this offense might be that defense. That's just being a sports fan. So what makes you a good sports reporter is having relationships with people. They know who you are. They trust you to tell you stuff. More importantly, you trust them. You know who's trustworthy in you and who's bullshitting you. You discern the two because it's very easy to figure out. You have people that you can go to who have known you for 15, 20 years. You have that past history of how a program has run and how a coach has coached. And that's what makes you a good reporter versus a good fan. I mean, it's one thing just to break down film. And I admire people that can do that because there are people that can do that who are 16 better than I can. And I'm quite fine with that. I'm it's, I don't make any bones about that, but that doesn't mean they know the sport better than I do. Uh, Cause I know where the bodies are buried. I know the people involved and I've worked my rear end off to make sure I know who those people are. So that's the most important thing you can do in this job. Anybody can write and like watch a basketball game and say, Oh, well, you know, the reason they won is because, you know, their full, their full court pressure really upset somebody else. Yeah. Okay. Well, why did they use the full court pressure? Who, who was the coach that was smart enough to put that in that day? How did he do it? Where did he do it? Where did he learn to do it? That's something I might know. The Ewing story really fascinated me because um, when I was growing up, I'm from New York. And when I was growing up in New York and then when I was oh, at sure. SI, Ewing was a notorious pain in the ass. He didn't talk yeah. that much. He could be surly. He could be rude, mm-hmm. you know, blah, 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 blah. I assume you've sort of dealt with him on and off mm-hmm. through the years or maybe you decide to do this story. How do you, how do you go about it? Like, how do you actually approach Georgetown and, and Ewing about going about doing it? Yeah. I mean, I, and, and I will tell you, I don't, I didn't have a great relationship with Patrick Pryor. I just, you know, I knew I, we had spoken pre, a few times to say he would know who I was or anything at that point. No. Why would he? Um, first, I went out to Vegas last July and just made it a point to kind of introduce myself to him and say, hello, say, I'd like to get together with you sometime, you know, when I get back preseason wise. And, and he said, OK. And then, you know, kind of every time I bumped into it, made sure I said hello, you know, name recognition, face recognition, whatever. And, you know, I went to Lori Hamamoto, who's their sports information director, because I knew I wasn't going to get Patrick on the phone directly and said that I wanted to do this story. Um, and so she brokered the time with Patrick and with their athletic director. And I went down there and spent some time in the office and did all that. And then the hardest part, of course, was getting Big John. I mean, I've sat in Big John's office for many an hour. I did a story on the, the end of the Big East tournament. And I, he spun five hours worth of tales that still I can call on at the, to this day to use for something because they were so fascinating. Um, but still, he's an enigma. He's difficult to get. Um, so I'd asked Georgetown and back and forth on that. And like I said, I've known John Thompson III since he was at Princeton. So I went to JT3 and I talked to him on the record and I said, I need some help getting your dad. And he helped me get his dad. And that's how that happened. Yeah. So, you know, working the relationships. And then, of course, once you get Big John on the phone, he's great. He's always good. He's always quotable. He's always stinking honest. Like He's never going to pull a punch. So once you get him, he's going to he's going to tell you stuff. It's just getting to him. And once I got on the phone, it wasn't like it was like he couldn't wait to get off. He he talked to me at length. But that took time. Like I started it at the end of July. Like I went to Vegas it, for lots of reasons. But part of the reason was to put my face in front of Patrick Ewing. And so he knew who I was. Well, that's really smart. It's really interesting how um, it's like uh, I never knew about this stuff when I was coming up either. But there are like 
I don't even know the right phrase. It's almost like a gateway interview. Like once you get John Thompson, yep. the senior, you're getting everyone else because all you have to tell them is you talk to John Thompson. Correct. That, some interviews just open everybody else up to talking. Without question. When I did that Big East thing, we did uh, the end of the, the last Big East tournament before the Big East kind of devolved and re, you know, reemerged into itself. We did sort of like the last dance at the garden of the big, big East. And so, yeah, that, and that's a perfect example of that because it was like, okay, so I got, you know, Mike Trangisi, I flew down to Florida. I sat with Mike Trangisi for many hours for that story. So once you get Mike, you say, well, look, I talked to Mike and they're like, right. Oh, all right. I, I got big John. What do you, what do you mean, Rolly? Uh, oh yeah. Okay. I'll, you know, so yeah, it's like one begets the next, begets the next. And you, you kind of have to start with the little ones and then you get the one big one and then you go backwards to the other big ones and say, look, I got so-and-so you don't want to not talk to me. He did. And then they do. Right. And most people, like in those circumstances, it was a story they wanted to talk about, but it's just getting to them and making them understand, like, this is okay. You can do this. And yeah, in the Georgetown right. circumstance, once you get Big John, anybody will talk to you about anything because it's like, okay, it's like the Pabble blessing. We can talk about this. Right. I've actually found the funny thing with books is oftentimes the biggest names are the least important interviews from a oh, literal gosh, yeah. sense, because right? Because they've talked to a million people already. But- Yep. They just open everything up. Yeah, right. For access purposes, they're the best. Like I, I always find like when you're doing a story about anybody, especially somebody that's been written about at length, like in my circumstances, say a coach, right? Who's you've written about, you know, Jim Beheim, for example, a million times. You need Jim Beheim's approval, so to speak, or or his interview to say, Hey, I spoke to Jim about this. But the people who are gonna right. tell you the stories about Jim aren't Jim. It's like his high school classmate and his college roommate. But you need to be able to say them. So I spoke to Jim and he mentioned you. And then you're like, oh, and they're like, oh, okay, cool. Then I can tell every stupid story about Jim Beheim that ever walked the face of the earth. So, right. But, but his so those stories are way better than the Jim Beheim stories of, are about himself. I think that's a really underrated point. I don't think I've ever talked about this with anyone. I don't think I ever heard a professor say it to me. But the big name interviews are gateway. They're just gateway drugs. You know, they are gateway yep. entries. To everything. And that is why you may, I wrote a book about the 86 Mets, just as an example, a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And, um, as soon as Gary Carter talked to me, it was open season. I could get anyone I wanted. But if you don't get, if you're not able to say to someone, I got this person, it makes it a million yep. times harder. Yeah, Absolutely. So Without question. Yeah. yeah. I, and, and there's, and there's one of those in, in any of the difficult stories, maybe not in every story, but certainly in the, in the more challenging ones. Yeah. There's always somebody like that. You just got to like cross them off the list and say, he might not even be quoted, but I have to get to him. <laughs> then we'll move right. on. When I started writing for The Athletic, the one thing I found a little tough, challenging, and I didn't even know how to go about it fully, was I would tell people I'm writing for The Athletic and they didn't know what it was. And, mm -hmm. you know, I used to write for SI, I used to write for ESPN, big, big yeah. entities where, with big name recognition. Has that at all been tough? Do you see the sort of recognition light bulb changing at all? Do you, does it matter? Yeah, well, I, I would say, so first of all, what I found is when I, you know, a year ago this time, or not even less than a year ago, because we didn't start till October, um, it was definitely like a, a who? And, but the interesting thing was, so because I had known, been doing this for however many years, I had no problem getting coaches on the phone. They knew I had moved on and, you know, they, most of them had reached out. They knew I had gotten laid off at ESPN and paid attention and I told them where I was. And so getting coaches to talk to me was easy peasy and getting access through sports information directors and going to the players. No problem. Where it came up weirdly was like, okay, I have to talk to so-and-so's mom. Okay. I get so-and-so's mom on the phone. Hey, this is Dana O'Neill from the athletic, the what? And I'm like, oh, it's a, you know, and then I had to explain what it is. And I didn't care. I yeah. just said, you know, we're, 
new startup. I said, just FYI, I used to be at ESPN, just to kind of like make sure they legitimize myself, I suppose, for lack of a better phrase. I didn't think I was some woman just calling off the street. But that was the weird part. It was sort of not the big name people. And not that they all knew where I was or, or had subscribed to The Athletic, but they knew me. So they didn't care. It was when you had to get ancillary people, like high school coaches or whatever, they'd be like, where are you? And then you had to explain right. it. But I definitely think, um, it, I mean, again, within this basketball community of people, it's definitely changed. And now I have more people say, oh, yeah, I subscribe to The Athletic. Cool, cool. You know, so I'm like, okay, good. That's It's getting yeah. – it's definitely progressing in leaps and bounds from where we were certainly in October. You handle getting laid off better than anyone <laughs> I've ever seen in media. No, I really mean that. Like, no, I you might swear want to, call to God. Some, you might want to call Pat Forty and Chuck Coldpepper and have them verify yeah. that. But okay, I'll run with it. <laughs> All right, I'll just, I'll, how about publicly, you handle getting laid off. <laughs> you, you know, you did this kind of series of tweets, April 26, 2017. Yeah, no, you started right. with, yeah, so today has been a bit like attending my own funeral. I've always tried to do my job with integrity. It's nice to think reading the tweets, texts, Facebook posts, and emails listening to phone messages that perhaps I met the mark. You know, I'm proud of the work I did over nine years at ESPN, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's just this kind of really classy and sort of, I don't know, dignified mm -hmm. approach to getting laid off. Was there a part of you that wanted to be like, fuck everyone, fuck you, go to hell? Yes. I hate everyone. Yes, there was, and that, that part exists. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> um, that part existed and existed loudly with my friends and close friends and my family, of course. Uh, yeah, that's why I'm laughing because the day I got laid off, I had made plans to be in New York City for something completely different and was meeting for dinner with Chuck Culpepper and Pat Forty. So <laughs> that's why I said you might want to verify my behavior with them because they could tell you. Um, but you know, yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I, I did all of those things and I raged and I cried and I, you know, whatever. But what good would that do publicly other than to make me sound, I don't know, bitchy, petty, Whatever. And, you know, and, and I felt like I did do good work at ESPN. I was proud of the work, some of it that I did there. Um, but, and I wasn't happy that they laid me off, but, you know, I also felt like it probably, I, and I felt this in the moment, even though I wanted to do it on my own terms, it was probably time for a, a breakup. I would have preferred a less messy one, um, yeah. just to jumpstart myself. But that's easy to say and difficult to do when you're in the gilded cage. So, you know, you have a good job. You're getting paid well. Why leave? But, you know, I, I've seen people get, you know, laid off and, and handle it both ways. And I totally get it. Um, but I didn't see anything to what, what good would me acting like a jackass on Twitter do? I mean, people don't care. And I was truly touched by the number of, I mean, coaches like that, that floored me. That one floored me because I'm like, I don't even think they would, what do they care? Like, what do they know? Right. And honestly, and this is not to name drop or throw names, but this is because this just tells you where I'm coming from within about 40 minutes. One of the first text messages I got was from Mike Shashevsky. Mike Shashevsky has never texted me before. I didn't think he knew right. how to text. So I was like, wow. Okay. Cool. Right. At least if I'm never going to work again, I, I had a good run. How does that happen? What I mean is I, I know your career path. What I mean is there are 75 million people who have covered college basketball uh, in the years you have covered college basketball. People come and go. People have had long careers. There have been men. There have been women. There you know, black, white, across the spectrum of all mm -hmm. sorts. How do you establish yourself as someone who is uh, good enough that Mike Sashevsky sees you get laid off and kind of send you a, a text? I mean, I don't, I don't know for sure. Like, you know, but the way I've always approached my job and still do is that I will be fair. I don't care if people like me, but I want them to respect me. 
And I certainly am able and willing to take shots at people or whatever you want to call it or call them out for, for transgressions. But I always feel like, um, that I choose those places where I really feel strongly about it and that they're backed up with facts that, um, I don't just pontificate and not show up. You know, I'm out there and if I write something that people don't like, they're going to see me the next couple of days and I'm going to take their criticisms. I mean, I had a, <laughs> a few years ago after UConn went through all of their stuff at the NCAA, I wrote a, a column where I um, compared Jim Calhoun to Colonel Kling from the Hogan's Heroes. Like, you know, I know nothing. And I saw Jim a couple of weeks later at Big East Media Day and he pulled me aside and he's like, you know, I, I didn't like what you wrote. I said, I didn't think you would. And he said, no, the reason I didn't like it is because you didn't call me. And I said, I stopped. I said, you know what, Jim? You're right. That was a mistake. I should have called you. And I, he was right. He was a hundred percent right. And I could have argued with him and said, well, bullshit did I say, but he was right. He deserved a phone call to say his piece and I didn't give it to him. We had a conversation and 10 minutes later, we did a video together. So wow. that to me is like what I try. Like I made a mistake. I owned it. Um, and if somebody, if, you know, I write a column and I see the phone ring the next day, like the phone number comes up from whoever it is. I know they're pissed. I take the call. I don't like it, but I take the call. I think that's what people expect. I mean, I feel like that's how I would want to be treated, right? I mean, I don't think it's complicated. If you treat people fairly and decently, fairly more than decently, that's all they ask for. I mean, they know they made mistakes and you're going to call them on it. Okay, but be fair in your criticism. Don't just shoot from the hip and, and not not know what you're talking about and have the authority that you've been in the trenches and that you're allowed to talk about it. I really don't think it's that complicated. I really don't. How do you feel when you see the phone ring and you know someone's pissed at you? I, I say like, oh shit. <laughs> That's how I feel. <laughs> like, uh, okay. And I, I said, then I think to myself, all right, here it comes. What am I going to say in response? And usually, right. you know, if somebody wants to screech, I let them screech for a little while. And then I talk and I just say, listen, I'm really sorry that, you know, you disagree and we're going to have to agree to disagree on this one. And, you know, I had a, I had a situation last year with a coach. I, I won't name him, but I did. And that's how we left it. I, you know, I, I'm sorry that you feel that way. It wasn't my intention, but I stand by what I reported and we're going to have to agree to disagree on it. And I saw him later in the season. He was fine. And what, right. what else am I going to say? And you know, when someone's that angry, like to me, it's like with my kids, like if they're screaming and they're angry, there is nothing good to come out of me yelling back. <laughs> it's just going to escalate it. Right. So I'm just going to let yeah. them scream and get it out of their system. And I'm going to try to talk rationally. You know, I had a, uh, I had a political reporter on this podcast about a year ago and she, um, she said to me, she loves when people chew her out because <laughs> she takes it quietly. She sits there and she knows by the end, the person is going to feel guilty and is going to be more open to talking to her. That's that is, I, you know what? That is a great point. I totally agree with you. And I will say, like, I try not to bring these sorts of gender things up, but sometimes I do think for whatever reason, they feel worse because they're screaming at a woman. And that's ridiculous because mm -hmm. I can take it just as much as a man, but I definitely right. do. And I've had coaches come back at me and say, I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have said all those things. I'm like, no, you're allowed to say them. I deserved it, but it's, <laughs> it's all good. But I, yeah, right. that's probably a very good point. I never thought of that. I hate being cliche, but I'm going to ask a cliche question. Do you feel like from the time you started in the business until now, people in college basketball, men's college basketball, treat women reporters differently or view women differently? Um, well, I mean, I will say that, so I hate to sound Pollyanna, but I came up, I, I didn't have a whole lot of bad instances. I will say with the, with the programs that I work with, even back in the day, 
they were always receptive. I think the kids never gave it. I don't think the kids give a shit who they talk to their kids. They just, they're happy someone's talking to them. Um, right. But, you know, and, and I had, you know, like Lisa Olson, people who came before me, they, they, they took more heat than I did. That's for darn sure. And I credit people like that for making my path less complicated. You know, I, I think what's changed now is social media. And that's not the people I, and I don't care. You people want to, you want to call me names on Twitter and all that crap. I don't care because you don't affect my daily life. I can, that's what God invented block and mute. You know, I care about what people I, who are, that I are my peers and the people I have to interview. I don't care about that. But, um, I think it's, I think honestly, I don't think it's that bad now among coaches. They're, they don't seem to mind. Maybe that's just because I've been around so long. They're sort of immune to me. What I have noticed, honestly, is there's less of us. I thought there would be more women reporters out there now. There's less, which I think is bizarre. Um, a lot Weird. of more women doing TV, right? And that's a, that's a fine avenue. But when I go into the final four press room and I look around, I can count on one or two hands the number of women reporters that are in there. And that always disappoints me because I don't know what happens to them. I see them in college classes when I talk and then they never seem to be anywhere. So. You know, I, I tell women all the time, like there's opportunity, there's opportunity. You just got to do your job. I do think the one thing that stayed the same is I can't afford to make stupid mistakes more, you know, as well as a man can, you know, in terms of like knowledge of X's and O's and things like that. I remember my favorite story of that is when I was at the Daily News, I was a backup writer for the Phillies and uh <laughs> I had to go out on maternity leave. So our hockey writer, and he was like a straight up hockey writer, came in with me to like come to a game to, you know, figure out where to go and then what to do and all that. And he's sitting next to me and game's tied in the bottom of the seventh. And he looks at me, he's dead serious. And he was not kidding. He looks at me and goes, what happens if it's tied after nine? And I looked at him, I went, oh my God. shoot out. I said, shoot out. He said, what? I'm like, freaking extra innings, you moron. And <laughs> like everyone laughed because he said it. If I had said it, no, 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 nobody would have laughed. They'd be like, what the hell is she doing here? That stuff hasn't changed yeah. at all. I just find grim the number of uh, like if you are a woman working in sports television, um, forget yeah. about it. I mean, the number of comments about your appearance is just and that's just, the, and that's what I mean. Like that's the stuff like the, the shit that's on Twitter. Well, I get, I mean, I get that to a lesser extent on Twitter, but you know, that's you know, if I say something on, if I write a column about a team and they don't like it. The stuff isn't just, you know, you're an idiot. It gets super personal. And, and what I get is a small percentage of what like the people on television get because it is always about what they look like. And it's so nasty and it's re, and, and it just, I don't get it. I really, I cannot fathom it. And I give those women all the credit in the world because their mutant block buttons are 10 times more active than mine are. I'm sure of it. But, you know, you you just, I tell every woman that wants to do this job, no matter what version they want to do, is you have to have a tough, number one, you have to have a thick skin. And number two, you have to be able to discern the difference when you're really being, like, discriminated against, someone's offensive, or you're just in a situation that's a very male-dominated field and you kind of like, you know, you, you got to get along with men to some extent. You can't get offended at everything because you won't last for 25 seconds. Wait, so what do you mean by that? What would be, what, what would be uh, like, an example of what you mean by that? That's a really interesting point. Well, I mean, like, so if I'm standing, if I'm sitting at a bar with 10 sports writers and they're checking out some chick in the bar, I'm not offended. I don't care. They're being, I, I don't care. If they're, not, they're not being, if they're not being like vile talking about it, they're just like, she's hot or something like that. I don't care. Go, I mean, right. I'll say the dude next to her is ugly. I don't care. Like he's out kicking right. his coverage. I'm going to play along in that circumstance. I am not going to be 
offended by that. Um, if someone walks up to me and says I don't belong or says something derogatory towards me or tries to make me uncomfortable, that's a different circumstance. But I also find in those circumstances, sometimes I, before I, you know, turn around and run to somebody, I try to handle it myself because I have to be able to stand on my own two feet at some level. And I will later maybe tell my bosses that such and such a thing happened. They'll say, what happened? What did you, what, what should we do? I'm like, no, no, it's handled. So that's the kind of thing. You know, I was just at Peach Jam. This was really funny. You know, at Peach Jam, they have the coaches sit in one section and the play, the families are on the other side. So they always allow the media to sit and talk to coaches. So then they had this rule for like five minutes where they weren't going to let us. And then they repealed the rule because they realized it was asinine. So I'm sitting there mm-hmm. and this guy walks up to me because, look, I'm a woman sitting among men's basketball coaches. They know I'm not a coach. And like, you can't sit here. And I said, what do you mean? They said, the, the, uh, they don't let you sit here. I said, no, no, that's, that's not the situation. They changed that rule. And he's like, well, that's, that's the situation as I've been told. I said, well, give me five minutes. I'm going to text the NCA right now. And, you know, so then I didn't get an answer and I saw other guys were sitting there and the rule was for all media, but the difference was like, they don't know that, you know, Rob Douster is not a coach because he looks like a guy. He's a guy. Right. And it wasn't them being sexist, but if I had just gotten up and run away or run to somebody else, it would have been one thing. I'm like, well, I'm just going to handle this. So I text the NCA. They said, no, that's not a rule. And I went back to the people at Peach Jam and they said, well, it's our rule. I said, well, then we can't do our jobs. And we went around the horn and we figured it out. But you got to be able to defend yourself a little bit, too, and know hopefully that your bosses have their back in really bad situations. But, it's right. you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not trying to say you, sh- you should put up with stuff because you shouldn't. But you have to know the difference between putting up with something really, really nasty and demeaning and stopping you from doing your job and putting up with just a bunch of guys acting like doofuses. Before you continue our two writers slinging yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlin, and I'm here with my friend Copal, who, and I'm being sincere when I say this, never tells a lie. So Copal, why are you so excited for my upcoming USFL book? I'm not. Wait, what? I don't even know what the USFL is. Will you buy a copy? No. Mm, do you like 503 Sports' merchandise? What is that? That's what this ad is for. Honestly, I'm just here for the free pony. There's no free pony. This sucks. Hmm, that didn't go very well, but that's okay, because 503 Sports is all about throwback. We're talking USFL, World Football League, XFL, minor league baseball, minor league hockey, old school Portland State, or put differently, if you're a man or woman who has long dreamed of owning a Scott McGee Houston Gamblers jersey, well, dreams come true. The merchandise at 503 Sports is handcrafted and all very reasonably priced, so be like me. Go to 503-sports.com and type in coupon code YANG18 to get 10% off your first purchase. Let's say Becky Hammond is hired tomorrow. Mm -hmm. To coach, whatever, Marquette men's basketball. Does that play well? Does she recruit well? Does it like, does it, is it, is it a pretty seamless transition in 2018? It's funny that you asked that because I'm working on a story about that very thing because there's a, um, a woman at the University of Maine. She's the only division one female assistant currently out there. And I just spoke to her about all of this yesterday. And, um, like we were, that's, she and I are both kind of like, like, why isn't it a seamless transition? Like, if you know basketball, you know basketball. Like, what's the difference? It's not like that complicated. She's coaching basketball, but it's going to, it's a big deal. It's a hugely big deal. If she's hired at Marquette, it's a big, gigantic deal. And everything she does will be scrutinized a little more carefully. Who she recruits, how she recruits, how those recruits react to her, how players' facial reactions are. If she goes in and screams at them on the bench. All of that stuff is going to be scrutinized and to pretend that it's not, I think is super naive. Does that mean that if a guy rolls his eyes that he's being sexist? No, they roll their eyes at male coaches too, right? 
but we're right. going to take it differently if it's viewed through the eyes of a, of a woman coach. So, um, I think it's, it's going to take a really, really strong woman to, to tolerate it. And I think they are out there and they can totally do it. And I think once it's done once, it's going to be not a big deal, but it's going to, it's, it's still, it's still, I think, a ways away from happening, unfortunately, which That's I think really is bizarre. Pathetic. Why is Gino R.E.M. able to coach? A no- like, what's the difference? Who cares? Right. Like, it's not like we're coaching some sport that doesn't, that has different rules. It's basketball. And, right. you know, this woman I spoke to at Maine said, the players don't care. She's like, if I walk in and I say, do this, do that, and I know what I'm doing and I help them get better, they don't care what I look like. <laughs> they just want to get better. It's all this right. other crap that's got to be fixed. So. But yeah, pathetically, is it still a big deal? Unfortunately, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I would hire Becky Hammond in a second. I think, number would. one, the attention would be amazing. She's a coach with San Antonio under Papa. I think that should be an absolute no-brainer decision right there. Right. Don't you think? I agree. But here, here's what I think, and I don't know this for a fact, and hopefully I can report this out and let you know. But part of the thing, I think, is, yes, they would want the splash, and, and but they understand like the, there might be a – portion of their fan base with a kickback. I also think there's a, and nobody will maybe ever admit this. There is not an administrator on the planet that wants to be the first guy, or guy that fires the female coach. And let's face it, she's going to get fired because they all do. <laughs> there are a very yep. small percentage of coaches, male, female that don't get fired. Right. So if you take the risk and hire the first female coach, that's awesome. And you are so, you know, you are so far ahead of everybody else and evolved and all these great things. And you've hired a person who's got great credentials and hope, and that's why you're hiring. You're doing it for all the right reasons. And your fan base will be like, hopefully embrace her and all that. But when it goes bad, are you going to have the same courage to fire? You should. Right. She deserves right. to get fired just as much as she deserves to get hired. <laughs> but right. I think that factors into people's minds. I really do. And there's also the backward thinking of like, Oh, how can she travel with a team? Which is, or how does she go in a locker room? Which is just stupid. It's so yeah, stupid. You wrote a story that came out uh, just a couple of days ago about Larry Clisby, the radio voice of Purdue mm-hmm. basketball and uh, fighting cancer. And you have a little section here I want to read. It's just two paragraphs. Once the lone communication from inside arenas and stadiums, radio broadcasters used to come into people's living rooms nightly. There was an intimacy to it, the voice belonging to a stranger, yet as familiar as that of a good friend. Many span decades outliving coaches' careers, sometimes more beloved than the guys in uniform because they never suffered the affliction of a bad loss or horrible play. Technology has changed things. The real action, not just the sound of it, is available in family rooms and now courtesy of live streaming and cell phones at lunch tables, subway seats, and work cubicles. But in certain outposts where fans prefer homespun catchphrases to taglines and the broadcaster still ranks as a family, radio still has a foothold. It's so good. Thank no, you. it's just freaking good. It's so breezy. It's like really breezy. And it's like with a few word changes, we could be having that conversation. And you'd be telling that if I were asking you, what was it like with radio? You'd be like, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. Once it was the only. Um, is it, I guess in a way it goes back to the beginning of our conversation, but it's just courage is the wrong word. It's not courageous to write like that, but like the ability to be writing a profile of a guy and just go on a little tangent about radio. Mm-hmm. Um, is that experience? Is that just, I don't know. I guess so. I mean, I think so. I mean, and I, you know, I will say without like sounding like a company still, our place wants you to stretch your legs a little bit longer on things. Like they don't want just the bare bones. They want like the, the story behind the story a little bit. They want to know the why's and the how's and like, not just why is every, like, not just, okay, Purdue has raised, you know, $54,000 for Larry Clisby in four days. 
well, why is he so important? Well, the reason he's so important is because people in Purdue still want to listen to the radio. That's kind of weird because nobody listens to the radio anymore. They listen to Spotify, you know? So, you know, and that's part of it. So that, you know, that's part of the, what we do, but I also think it is part of the story. I mean, I, I, that was the sort of story I wanted to write. It's like, not just that they raise money, but why, why they care so much about this guy. So I, I don't know that that's experience so much as asking yourself a simple question. And suppose of just, like, I think sometimes the easiest thing to do is report what happened. The harder thing is to ask right. why it happened. And when you write why it happened, you get a better story. And I think that's, I just want to say, thing. I really want to say this. That story could have been, because there are every day or every week in this country, there are a million stories about the guy battling cancer, the guy battling MS, sure. the guy who lost his kid, the guy, blah, blah, blah. And unfortunately, yes. Right. Of course. But you took, I thought, what could, I sound like an American Idol judge half the time on this stupid podcast, but like <laughs> you took, you made it pitchy. Like you took this story that could have just been, and it would have been fine, the sad story of this guy battling cancer. And you gave it a perspective that, I think most of these stories don't have, which is this is why he's important and this is why it works. I just thought that was really good and really smart. Oh, thank you. So I, you I, honestly, I do. I thank you. And I do. But I do honestly think that that is, you know, part of the problem of this craft, if you call it that still, as we exist right now, there is so much like, give me 400 words on what happened. Give me 400 words on what happened. Everybody knows what happened because if you're paying attention, especially if it's your own team, you know that something good, better, and different happened. So rewriting 400 words doesn't do you any good. What people don't know or is why it happens or what does it mean or what does it mean down the road or what did it mean back when? That to me is way more interesting. And I think what people are more interested in hearing, because that's what they don't know. That's what they don't hear. We all know what happened anymore, but it's all shoved in front of our faces between social media and television and everything else. So I think our job is to tell people well, what it means to them or why it matters or why it happened or I don't know, or why this dude's important. I, I, right. I don't think that's a rocket science, frankly. Right. I just want to say you, um, I can't find it now, but you do these Q and A's on uh, the athletic uh, every now mm -hmm. and then. And you did one recently. I can't find it. And it's annoying me because someone was like, Hey, Dana, do you regret picking so-and-so to do so-and-so? And I always think it's so funny when people think we live in regret. Like, it'll be like, hey, Jeff, nice job picking the Mets to win the NLEs. And I'm like, buddy, I don't give a shit. I truly, it was a prediction. I don't even remember making it, right? <laughs> I, it kills me. I was at a thousand years ago. I remember we were in Alaska. Villanova was playing in the Great Alaska Shootout. And me and the guy from the Inquirer ended up in like in the hotel bar or whatever. And this fan comes up and they're just like, and then do you remember on that play and this play? I'm like, dude, you have to understand. I'm lucky if I remember the final score. I know who won, right. but I honest to God don't know the final score. Like, I don't, I, this isn't my team. Like, I'm not living and dying here. Now, you want to catch me on a Saturday in the fall and talk Penn State football? Yeah, I can go there. But when I cover it, and yeah, it's the same thing. Don't you, Teo, you're the idiot that picked, you know, whatever to go to the <laughs> final four. I'm like. Well, yeah, but I mean, I had like a four and 351 chance to get it right. Like, well, of course it was right. wrong. I mean, what are the odds I get them all right? It's a pig. Right. I'm not Nostradamus. I love that. I don't know. It's one of my, my favorite. favorite things is when people, is. readers think that we are devastated over getting a prediction wrong. <laughs> I love that. I know. It's like I the know. best. <laughs> it's a best. It, it is. <laughs> hey, it's, Jeff. It's, it's, hey, yeah. Jeff. I know. Nice job on picking the NL MVP last year. Oh, you got right. it. Damn it. <laughs> and that's why I always like when I get one right, I'm like, oh, look at me. I think I, 
I picked Butler to the final four like the second time. I was like, I'm, I am brilliant. I will brag about that. Right. Nobody will ever remember that when I got it right. Like, no, right. are you crazy? Right. No, but I got that right. Go me. <laughs> and it has you know, the same amount of weight of everyone I got wrong. They warned me, get Dana, get Dana O'Neill on your podcast. She's going to brag incessantly about picking Butler. <laughs> really exactly right. I have it hanging on a notepad <laughs> above my bed. Every night I can wake up and say, yep, there it is. I got it. Let me ask you a final question. Before uh, I was texting you before we did this, that I, I live in Southern California and I was walking down my street and we live in eternal drought here. And some guy's like mm. hosing off his driveway and I feel like punching him in the face. And, um, you know, climate change is a nightmare and we have this nut job present and blah, blah, blah. And there's all this crazy <laughs> stuff going on in the world right now. How do you still care about college basketball? I actually mean that. Like how... <laughs> How are you still like, oh, I wonder if Georgetown's going to be better than St. John's this year. I wonder if Mullen's going to blah, blah, blah. Like, how do you care? Well, I mean, there, there are days that I feel like, oh, my God, like, I just really, you know, seriously, this, this doesn't matter a flick. But maybe that's part of why. Well, first of all, I, I, I think people do need a distraction. I mean, like, my God, especially these days, like, you need something to just, you need a happy place, a safe place. So this is like my safe place. <laughs> You know, I mean, for real, you do. Like, I, I, I read the yeah. New York Times every day. I'm like, oh my God, I'm just going like, to keep walking into the ocean and not stop. But you need, right. so you need a happy place. And this is people's happy place. And I don't kid myself. Like, I don't, I take myself seriously because I want to be a professional, right? And I want to be respected. And I want to do my job well. But I don't take what I do terribly seriously. I am not, you know, what I'm doing is a, but a pimple on the rear end of, of journalism at some level. It's sports writing. It's great. It's fun. People care. But I am not, you know, I am not going out and investigating the president of the United States here. I mean, I might be investigating college basketball and the FBI, but whatever. Um, so I think that's part of it. You have to keep perspective on it. And I like it. I, you know, I still love what I do for a living. That's why like when I got laid off, I remember that's what I said. You know, everyone's like, you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. You're going to find a job. And I kept saying to people, I get that, but you don't understand. I really like what I do for a living. I don't want to have to just get a job. I want to get a job that I love. And I've had a job that I've loved. I'm scared to death. I'm not going to do a job that I love. So that's why, you know, I still love it. And, and I will say too, as much as I love college basketball, I love to write. It's college basketball is what I write about, but I love to write. So that's the most important thing. And I tell everybody that wants to be a sports writer that I'm like, your love for writing needs to outweigh your love of the sport itself. Because if you just love the sport, you're, you, you have to write every day. I love to write. So that's why I still care about it, I guess, because it just gives me an avenue to do what I love to do. And I, and I think it's fun. I mean, it is. It's fun. I mean, I get to go sit at a basketball game and call it work. I mean, that's, that's silly. So I should be grateful for that. So why not care about it? I actually love that you just said that because it's easy to forget. You and I, you and I are among the minority of people in this world who have jobs that they genuinely enjoy. Like that is a rare kind of treasure right there. I mean, my husband yeah. and I tell our kids, my husband's an athletic trainer and he loves his job. And that's what I say to my kids all the time. I don't care what you do, so long as you love it. Cause if you love it, it won't feel like work. And guess what? You will get paid well eventually because, or maybe you won't and you won't care because you, you'll be good at it. You can't be good at something you don't, I mean, I guess you can, I guess you can fake it, but I got, I couldn't do it. I couldn't just go right. sit behind it. I mean, I was terrified. I kept interviewing, like talking to people They're like, well, you need to be at the office. I'm like, oh my God, I have to be in the office. Like I have to be dressed and clean from like eight to five, like showered. People still right. do that in the world. <laughs> like, well, I can't do that. I'm not doing that. So yeah. So I still love my job. I just want you to know, final thought here. We are, uh, we're in a pretty fierce battle right now. I'm looking on amazon.com and you wrote a book about villain over basketball. 
And right now on Amazon, you are ranked 467,370th. <laughs> and my Roger Clemens book is ranked 759,581st. <laughs> so right now, all I need is one order. And I think, uh, I think it so, gets a lot. Not, so what you're saying is neither one of us are retiring on our royalties. I believe yeah, is the I answer. So. <laughs> okay. Damn it. I thought for sure I was. Well, uh, Dana, I, um, seriously, this is one of my favorites. I appreciate it. You're, you're just a great writer. And, uh, thank you. You, I, you admire your work, seriously. So, uh, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. And thank you for having me. It's fun. I want to thank today's guest, Dana O'Neill, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow Dana on Twitter at Dana O'Neill Writer and read her stuff on The Athletic. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You can visit the website at 503-sports.com. My upcoming book, Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL, is available for pre-order wherever books are sold. Just a reminder. And one can listen to Two Writers Sling and Yang on Apple Music and Google Play. Reviews are always appreciated. Music, again, is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks for joining me. And remember, keep writing.